This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. Good evening, everyone. Since this is the last class of this year's July classes, I'm going to jump to the end of the outline, skipping some things I would like to discuss, but for which we have no time, and picking up our discussion on what I have here as page 10. I'm not sure it is. It's Roman numeral 6. And um, as as the heading, How Suffering Works Our Sanctification. I'll be following the outline uh, as it is found under that point. There is one passage of the Word of God which our chairman did not read. I didn't mention it to him, but which I would uh, like to recommend for your meditation and for our theme tonight. And that passage to which I refer is found in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 10. I'd like to have you look at it a moment in your Bibles. It's a very beautiful passage. It's a prayer of Jeremiah the prophet who suffered so intensely at the time of the fall of the uh, holy city and the captivity of Judah. I refer to Jeremiah's prayer as recorded in chapters 23 and, I mean, verses 23 and 24. In a way, it sums up everything we have talked about the last four weeks, but it's particularly applicable tonight. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. And that is, of course, a negative confession of the sovereignty of God. The prophet does not say that in so many words, but from the next verse obviously means it is God who directs man's way and man's steps. And so he prays to God, O Lord, correct me, but with judgment, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. In other words, the prophet prays for correction and prays for correction under the judgment of God but pleads with God that that judgment does not come upon him in God's anger because that will destroy him. And that is why he goes on to say in verse 25, Pour out thy fury upon the heathen that know thee not, and upon the families that call not on thy name. For they have eaten up Jacob and devoured him and consumed him and have made his habitation desolate. 
I think that's an appropriate text for our discussion tonight. Nevertheless, I'm going to be concentrating tonight on 2 Corinthians 4, which the chairman read, and particularly verses 16 through 18. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We talked in the course of this year's class briefly about suffering, although it was last year especially that we concentrated on that subject. And we discussed the fact that suffering is a normal and much to be expected part of the Christian life. Suffering comes upon the people of God in a number of different ways and some of those ways we discussed. The last two weeks we talked particularly about sanctification and stressed, especially last week, that sanctification involved, while we are in this life, the struggle between what we call the old man of sin and the new man that is created in the believer by the work of regeneration. It's that struggle of the old man and the new man that is of particular interest to us tonight. It's a reference to what the apostle in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 4 calls the inward man and the outward man. That's the same thing. There is no difference between the inner man and the new man and the outer man and the old man. In this chapter, in its entirety, the apostle ties together the sufferings which he endured, first of all, on behalf of the gospel, and the sufferings which the people of God endure with the destruction of the old man and the renewal of the new. In the midst of all his sufferings, the apostle says, for which cause we faint not, for though, but though our outward man perish, that is, through suffering, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. How does that work? How can that be? The apostle explains that in verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
it is profitable for you in your own consideration of this profound passage of the scriptures to go on into chapter 5 and especially the first nine verses because in chapter 5 the apostle discusses a little bit more in detail how the outward man perishes and how the inward man is renewed and what it means that the inward man is renewed. I would really like to go through this entire chapter, chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5 with you tonight, but there's no time for that. I consider this chapter from the viewpoint of the sufferings of the people of God to be one of the most profound and significant passages in the whole of the scriptures. We can only touch tonight on some of the important points. Before we get into the subject itself, there's one more truth of which I spoke earlier that I must remind you of, and that is this, that in the struggle between the old man and the new man that goes on in the life of the child of God, we must never underestimate the power of the old man. In fact, the old man is so powerful and has such control of us in all that we do that it seems almost impossible that the new man could ever gain the victory. If I may put it bluntly and forthrightly, the simple fact of the matter is that we are, every one of us, such dreadfully wicked sinners that salvation is almost impossible. How anyone can deny total depravity is a mystery to me. It is almost impossible to save us. The child of God knows that in his heart. That's not just an abstract truth. He knows in his own experience, as he experiences in his own consciousness, the war that goes on between the old and the new man, that it is almost always apparently a losing battle. The Catechism puts it very forthrightly in two very expressive phrases. In one place, the Catechism says, the best of our works, the best, the very best of a regenerated, sanctified child of God are still corrupted and polluted with sin. There is no work which we do, a good work, a work that proceeds from the grace of God, a work wrought by the Spirit in our hearts, a work that God works in us by making us willing and able to do His will, is still hopelessly corrupted. Hopelessly. And then in another remarkable phrase, the Catechism says, that 
when it comes right down to it, and everything is said and done, and we reach the bottom line about all we can see for ourselves as regenerated, saved people of God, we have a small beginning of the new obedience. Small. All the emphasis falls on that word small. And not only is it small, but it's only the beginning. It's the first day in kindergarten. A small beginning of perhaps 12, 13, 20 years of education. The first day of kindergarten. It's about as far as we get. And the reason for that is that it is so dreadfully difficult to save us. I want to underscore that. We often take a rather lackadaisical attitude towards our salvation. As if it doesn't mean anything. It requires no effort. God can save us with a snap of the fingers. He's almighty, isn't he? He's able to do whatever it pleases him to do, is he not? Of course, of course. But that doesn't alter the fact that even from God's point of view, our salvation is an extraordinarily difficult thing. That we get to heaven is forever a wonder. That we are able to complete our life's pathway and reach our everlasting destination is a miracle of the profoundest kind. It is, as it were, that we are all but carried by a power mightier than our own beyond the borders of time into everlasting life. We're scarcely saved, Peter says. That fact means that the most Extreme measures are required to save us. God, as it were, and I know I speak as a man, God, as it were, has to extend himself beyond anything we can imagine in order to save us. If he were not divine, it would be impossible if you were not the living God who has purposed this in his eternal counsel, it would be beyond the realm of possibility. That's proved by the fact that our salvation required from God himself that he give his only son whom he loved. We can't even begin to imagine what that meant for God and what he was willing to do to attain our salvation. The, the closest we can come to imagining what that meant was to ponder the sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah by Abraham. When Abraham had to take his son, his only son, the son of the promise, 
the Son on whom hinged the salvation of the world and offer him as a sacrifice to God. You say, yes, but Abraham's hand was stayed. It was, yes. But not until Abraham had in his heart and in his mind offered up, in fact, his son. In fact, Hebrews insists on that. When Hebrews, talking about the heroes of faith, says, by faith, Abraham offered up his son, not just about offered him, in fact did offer him from the viewpoint of his own heart and mind. Imagine the anguish of a father who must take his son and tie him with ropes and put him on an altar with wood and run a knife through his heart and burn his body with fire. That was a picture of God giving his son. As Abraham said prophetically, the Lord will provide my son, which he did. But there was a demonstration of the extreme measures that had to be taken in order to secure our salvation. Now the point is, and this is the point which needs to be driven home, not only are those extreme measures the death of the Son of God himself, but those extreme measures involve the application of the death of Christ to us. And that is suffering. Peter says, when he talks about the fact that the righteous are scarcely saved, because it is so extremely difficult to save them, it has to be through judgment. That's what Jeremiah says too. Judgment. Judgment begins, Peter says, at the house of God. And if judgment begins at the house of God, what shall the end of the ungodly be? For if the righteous are scarcely saved, what shall happen to those who disobey the gospel and are disobedient? Scarcely saved, with difficulty saved, and therefore by means of judgment. That's the only way that it is possible for us to be saved. Does suffering come as a surprise? When we are asked to endure the sufferings of this present time, whatever they may be in whatever form they may take, are we caught off guard by that? We ought not to be. We ought not to say to ourselves, oh, but now what's happening? How can God do this to me? Why does he do this to me? What have I done to deserve this? and all kinds of strange questions. When we ought to understand, if we take the perspective of the scriptures, that if we are to be saved, and if we are someday to go to heaven, it can only be because God himself uses the same extreme measures that he used in sending his son. He causes us to suffer.
Now, if we look for a moment at those verses in 2 Corinthians 4, especially verse 17, the apostle talks about the relation between suffering and sanctification in a very graphic way. He uses the figure of a scale on which things are made, not the kind of digital scales to which we are accustomed but a scale that was used in those days which was a kind of a balance on which on each side was a tray. You will pardon my artistry. And a certain weight was placed on this side of the balance and another weight was placed on that side of the balance and the relative weight of the two compared with each other was judged by how far one side went down and the other side went up. That's the figure of the apostle, very graphic figure. And he says to the people of God, now if you want to understand this properly, then what you must do is put all your afflictions here. Every last one of them. Every last one of your sufferings, your own battle with sin, the persecution which you must endure in the world, the disappointment, the heartache that is characteristic of our lives, the many trials of sickness and suffering and finally death. Put them all there. Every one of them, every single one you can possibly think of, put on this side the scale. And then put on this side of the scale the glory that awaits you. And what do you think will happen to the scale? The apostle says, this is what's going to happen. All of a sudden, this side will shoot so far down that it's insignificant, or so far up, I should say, with a balance, that it's almost, this, this arm is almost straight up in the air. While this side goes all the way down so that this bar is almost like this, as far as it can go. The sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the weight of glory. That's their, the figure, see, the weight of glory. So what the apostle is saying then is that although to us afflictions seem to be a great, great weight that we can scarcely carry, if we put them on the scales of God and put the glory that awaits us on the other side, then we will discover that these don't amount to a thing. They don't amount to a thing. Pile all your sufferings up, the apostle says. They don't amount to anything at all. Not when they're compared with the glory that awaits us. I think when we ponder this and when we think about it, we would be inclined very much to say to Paul, Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. It must be that you have never really endured any of the sufferings and afflictions that have characterized my life of sorrow and grief in the world. You must never have gone with me to the hospital on sick calls. You must never have been at my side when I had to visit people in nursing homes who have lost their minds and who stagger unknowingly towards the grave. You've never gone to the cemetery, have you, when parents bury a child whom they love 
or when a husband buries his spouse. If only you could understand once what afflictions I have endured, you wouldn't talk as if our afflictions didn't mount, amount to anything at all. It must be that either you're very cold and unsympathetic or you don't even know what suffering is like. Paul brushes that all aside. Don't talk that way to me, he says. You want to know if I know what suffering is? Listen, I'll tell you just a couple chapters later. This is suffering. 2 Corinthians 11. I speak as concerning reproach as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that he's a minister of the gospel. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent. Any of you ever been in prison? For the sake of the gospel? In deaths oft. Paul, in deaths oft. I've often died. He was dead on the road between Lystra and Iconium, after all, when they stoned him. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in peril of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So Paul brushes your objections aside and says, yes, I know what afflictions are. I know what it means to suffer, probably a whole lot more than any of you. I insist that your afflictions do not amount to anything. And he says, you better understand that too. No matter how heavy your cross may be, no matter how great the Lord may make you suffer, how intensely, it's a light affliction. And it is that, says the apostle, particularly because it's for a moment. While the weight of glory which we shall receive is eternal. That's why. And therefore, if you compare the intensity of the sufferings of the child of God at their very worst with the weight of glory that is ours, there isn't any comparison, for the weight of glory is infinitely greater, and it makes all the sufferings of this present time vanish away as the mist under the morning sun. 
That's what the apostle is stating. But then he goes one step further. And this is the part which is of particularly, particular concern to us tonight. Not only when you compare our affliction with the weight of glory, is there no comparison, but God gives us this besides. And this is the profound point that we must understand. That light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us an exceeding great and eternal weight of glory. The word worketh, that's the word, that's the word. Without our affliction, salvation would be impossible. There is no road to heaven except the road of suffering. There is no way to arrive at the gates of the celestial city except to bear a cross. There is a song like that. It has a world of truth in it. I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but this. I shall ne'er catch sight of the gates of light if the way of the cross I miss. That's true. Heaven is beyond our reach, except in the way of suffering. It can never be attained by any child of God, except for the sufferings of this present time. Now that I want to talk about for a little while tonight, and try to drive the importance of that and the meaning of that home to you. Why is it that suffering works our glory. It works our glory because, as Paul says, through the instrumentality of suffering, our outward man perishes and our inward man is renewed. Suffering does that. Let me explain that a little more. I have stressed from time to time in the course of this year's class and last year's class that the only way in which this is possible is because of the fact that we suffer with Christ. That's a must. When I talk about suffering with Christ, I mean literally Suffering with Christ. Suffering in fellowship with him. Suffering as a part of his body. Participating in the sufferings which he endured. In every respect, except for the fact that his sufferings were fundamentally and principally expiatory atoning sufferings as the obedient and faithful servant of God. We talked about that last week. You recall how we discussed the fact that Christ is the federal head of his people, that is, that Christ represents his people 
as Adam represented the entire human race, that he stood in their place, that he stood where they should have stood, that he stood as their federal head because only he, as the appointed servant of Jehovah, could bear the burden of their guilt and death in hell and make atonement for it. As in Adam all died, so in Christ shall all be made alive. We're not talking about that federal headship tonight, although that's at the basis of what I have to say, but we're talking about the organic unity between Christ and his people. That is, that Christ is the head and we are the body, that we are united to him by faith. I know we use that expression, united to Christ by faith, in a rather cavalier and offhanded fashion without really understanding what it means in all of its riches and glory. But it means this, that we are engrafted into the body of Christ in the same real way as a branch is grafted to a tree and becomes a part of the tree. It's emphasized repeatedly in scripture. John 15, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Abide in me, and ye will bear fruit. Ephesians 5, speaking of marriage, this is a great mystery, but I speak of Christ and his church, who together become one flesh, of which we have only a small and beginning picture in the human institution of marriage. I refer to our Heidelberg Catechism in that gloriously beautiful Lord's Day on the Lord's Supper, where it asks the question, do we really eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ? And the, and the answer of the catechism is without a moment's hesitation, indeed we do. The Belzee Confession echoes the same words. But we don't eat it in the sense of a carnal earthly eating as the Roman Catholics teach. But, says the Heidelberg Catechism, it means among many other things that we are more and more united to his blessed body by the Spirit who dwells in him as our head and in us as his members. We are united to him. That's indeed a mystery. I have no conception of what that means. I hope someday to understand that better when the full reality of that is our possession in heaven. But in this life already we are united to Christ. We are. So much so, mind you, that Paul says in Ephesians 1, just as Christ is in heavenly places, so are we, even while we're here on this earth. But to be united to Christ means that we go with Christ to the cross. That we go with Christ to the grave. 
And then only do we go with Christ to glory. All the sufferings which Christ endured, except his expiatory sufferings, are ours too. In a very real sense of the word. I can only repeat momentarily now, in, in a few moments' time, what I've said before. Was Christ hated by the world? So are we. Was Christ forsaken by those whom he considered to be his brethren? So are we. So much so that the Lord himself had to remind us, he that loves father and mother, sister or brother more than me is not worthy of me. Union with me means even sometimes separation from husband or wife or children or parents. And the psalmist sings of that in a voice of deep pathos. Was Christ under the wrath of God? So are we. So much so that the psalmist cries out in Psalm 39, In thy wrath and hot displeasure chasten not thy servant, Lord. Did Christ have to endure the abandonment of God in the depths of hell? So do we. When in the depths of our misery and trouble and affliction we cry out to God and there is no answer, and heaven remains as hard as brass, and the doors of heaven seem slammed in our face. Where is God? Why doesn't he hear? I can't find him, Job says. Wherever I look, I can't find him. Because all the suffering of Christ that he endured, we bear too. We are part of his body. We bear that suffering in this life. We bear it as part of the necessity of our salvation. Without it, we cannot be saved any more than we can be saved apart from the suffering of Christ on the cross. Christ suffers in us when we suffer, no matter what that suffering may be. And we suffer in Christ in our affliction. Only because that is true are we sanctified because, you see, when Christ died on the cross, he died for sin and guilt and the corruption and depravity of our old natures. And his death meant because it was an expiatory death, because he was paying for our sins, that our old man also was dying. And principally when Christ accomplished all his sufferings on the cross, he accomplished them so that our old man could be carried with him to the grave. Or to put it very specifically and down to earth, the sufferings which we endure here on this life are necessary for us because in the wisdom of Almighty God 
And because of the extraordinary difficulty of saving us, we have to share in Christ's sufferings for that old man to be killed, that the blessedness and power of the cross may in fact take place within our hearts. That's why, says Paul, all my suffering is for that purpose. And my suffering is great and my suffering is bitter, but we are indeed troubled on every side, but not distressed because the old man is dying. Don't you see? We are perplexed, perplexed. Ah, that's a forceful word. That rings a bell in, in my consciousness. Perplexed by the intensity of the sufferings which God sends to us. Not being able to get a hold of them. Not being able to understand the necessity of them. Wondering why in the depths of my misery this should happen. Perplexed, but not despairing. Not that, because the old man is being killed. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Not forsaken by God. Because as they persecuted Christ, so they persecute us. Cast down, but not destroyed. And then this always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, you see. That's what this is all about. That's our sanctification. The old man is dying, but he's such a powerful monster. He's such a beast. He's such a major factor in my life that it takes the sufferings of Christ in me to kill him. Otherwise, he rears his ugly head again and again and again. Otherwise, he seizes control of my life. Otherwise, that old man, my old man, I myself, under his control, go in the ways of Satan and in the ways of hell, suffering with Christ, that the old man may be killed because the suffering of Christ is of such power that united to him, its power is the destruction of the old man in me. That, people of God, is sanctification. Don't you see? That is sanctification. Bearing about in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life also of Jesus, the life of his resurrection, may also be, be manifest in our body. Ah, yes. As the old man dies, as gradually, bit by bit, he is hammered by the destructive force of our suffering with Christ in fellowship with him, the new man emerges strong and powerful and beautiful. And that new man has the end in heaven. Suffering brings us to glory. The way of the cross leads home. 
Now, before I make the concluding remarks about this, let's uh, take a break, short break, and sing a song. If you will stand, please. Oh, let's see. I thought I had a... Let's sing Psalm 77. I never know Psalters by their numbers. They know better by the Psalms. That's because I didn't go to our own school. Uh, let's see. Let's sing 209. And a couple of stanzas of that. In the first part of that song, the psalmist speaks of the suffering which he endured, even being forsaken by God. But then towards the end, he speaks of how all these sufferings were, after all, for his salvation. We can't sing these all. Let's sing... One, two, six, ten, and eleven. One, two, six, ten, and eleven. Two oh nine. Will you stand?
Thank you, Sharon. Want to conclude our class this year with a few remarks about two subjects. One is a brief consideration of what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 5, our glory, that our suffering works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Second remark is, a group of remarks is our attitude then towards suffering. When the apostle speaks here of glory, he's talking, of course, obviously about heaven, but although it's very common in the scriptures to describe heaven in terms of glory, I'm not so sure we always appreciate what that precisely means. Glory does not mean so much, although that too, the blessed state into which we enter, but it refers to the glory of God in the sea, if I may use that expression, the sea of which we bathe. Let me see if I can make that clear. In two of the letters of the Lord to the churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord gives to the promise of the faithful in two of these cities that when they receive the reward of faithfulness, they will have, well, in one instance, the letter speaks of they will have a new name written on their foreheads. And in the other, that they will receive a name which no one else can bear. I find that promise not only intriguing, but extraordinarily enticing. When I think of the fact that in heaven I will receive a new name, that to me strikes me as the most wonderful thing that can happen to me. You recall how Adam named the animals in paradise. And when he named the animals in paradise, he gave to each animal a name which did a number of things, among, among which were these. It, the name itself expressed the unique way in which that particular animal created by the Word of God revealed God's glory in its own unique place in the midst of the organism of the creation. And it, in the second place, it defined, that name that Adam gave it, defined God's purpose, that is, how God purposed to glorify himself through that particular creature. The place that creature occupied in God's eternal plan. 
and what use God made of that creature in connection with all the other creatures, but uniquely in its own way. And so God gave names to individuals in the Old Testament, as you know, which names indicated how that particular person in his own place and calling in life was going to be used by God to realize the eternal purpose of his covenant. Abraham, father of nations. Sarah, princess, mother of kings. Elijah, in a nation of Baal worshipers. My God is Jehovah. Elisha, the pastor, to save a remnant according to election from apostate nation. My God saves. And so it was. Now the scriptures say that every one of us will receive in glory, and this will be our glory, a new name. It will not be a name such as is written on the tax rolls of the city of Walker, which rolls are kept rather accurately, I guess. I got a notice in the mail today that I hadn't paid my taxes and they'd better, I'd better get with it or else. So they know all about me. Not that kind of a name, but a name that God gives that exactly fits me and a name that you receive that exactly fits you so that when you look at me in heaven and I look at you and see you, then I will say, why, that's so-and-so, that's his name, has to be, that's the only name that fits. Don't forget, for example, that on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah appeared with the Lord, and the disciples, Peter and James and John, saw these two men, Moses and Elijah. They had never met them before. They didn't know what Moses looked like. They didn't know who Elijah was. They had seen no pictures of them. And yet, instantaneously, they knew this is Moses and this is Elijah. And it was so natural that they didn't even make a big deal about it. Lord, says Peter, let's make some tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. How do they recognize them? Only because the name fit them so perfectly. Now why does that name fit so perfectly each child of God? Because that name reveals how God accomplishes the glory of his own name in that individual person. That takes into account how God reveals his own glory by saving that person, by saving that person in that person's own unique pathway in life that God called him to walk, by saving that person with all the troubles and sorrows and afflictions which were the lot of that individual saint. That is, how God worked his grace in the heart of that person. 
worked his grace through affliction, through suffering, through pain, worked his grace by the power of his spirit, uniquely because you're saved in a different way than I am in your own unique circumstances of life. And when we get to heaven, somebody says sometime, will we remember what happened on earth? Well, of course, of course we have to. Heaven means nothing if we don't remember what happened on earth. But it won't be from the perspective of this temporal, as Paul says, but it'll be from the perspective of the eternal, how God worked his purpose, how God attained his glory, how God manifested the riches of his grace and mercy and love in you, in your own unique way, and how he worked all of this in your own unique sorrows and pains and troubles and anguish to put you right in that place, in the new heavens and in the new earth, where he wanted you to go from before the foundations of the world, and how everything that happened to you was simply preparation, that's all, preparation. The name will express all that. Don't forget that, Mo, that Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration not only recognized Moses and Elijah immediately, but understood full well that Moses represented the law and that Elijah represented the prophets and that Christ had to go to his glory through suffering because this was Moses and Elijah. This was the law and the prophets. There was no other way for the Son of God to attain to his glory than through the sufferings which he endured. And Moses and Elijah had to come to Christ to remind him of that. The scriptures have to be fulfilled. You have to go to Jerusalem because that's where your, that's the word they use, your exodus out of this life into your eternal glory will take place. And because Christ's glory that he has in heaven, the fullness of all glory and all blessedness forever and ever, is now the glory of the body, that glory will reveal how God in his infinite mercy and love worked in the lives of every single elect and manifested in that way his glory. You see, that's glory. And that's what we want, isn't it? We're not anxious to go to heaven because we want, I don't know, we want Moses and Elijah or Peter and Paul to rush up to us and place us on a pedestal and say, in heaven, now here's a fine outstanding saint who has attained great and heroic deeds while he was on earth. And we shall gather together now that he has arrived on heaven's shores to give praise and honor to him that is due to him. Is that what heaven is all about? Of course not, a thousand times no. Because the only way there is to participate in the sufferings of Christ. And God glorifies himself through Christ. And so when a saint comes there, his glory will be that all of his life will be put in its proper perspective in the light of God's eternal purpose and the glory of his own great and holy name, we will 
be bathed in the glory of God revealed in Christ because we are part of him. We suffered with him. Now we're glorified with him. And Christ is the one through whom God glorifies himself. And that, beloved, will be marvelous. Each in his own place in that body of the saints which no man can number. There we will be. And no one will be able to take our place. No one will be able to have our name. Any more than we will be able to have anybody else's name. Because it will all be God's glory as he worked his eternal and unfathomable purpose from the beginning to the end of time. So that all glory and praise is his and his alone. That's why the choir of the church of all ages will sing its doxologies of praise and glory to God, each with his own voice, a voice trained, a voice purified, a voice made unbelievably beautiful through all the sufferings of this present time, glorified in the choir of heaven, each voice different, each voice a man's own, but one song, the glory of Almighty God, and the harmony is beyond description. If we understand suffering that way, then we have a perspective on suffering which is of great comfort. I don't mean in any way to belittle the agony of suffering. God's chastening hand can be very heavy. And in the midst of all the troubles and sorrows of this present time, when we in our stubbornness and bullheadedness are critical of God's ways and dissatisfied with his dealings, then he says, as a parent says to his child, you must need another licking, yet you still don't understand. And he chastens us more until, and I've been there, and undoubtedly you have been there, until at last we say, Lord, I am nothing. I am nothing. Do with me what you will. I will bear it. What thy will is for me is what I want regardless of what it is. Then the Lord says, and now you have learned, I must have all the glory, not you. When you have learned that, I will fill you with my glory. And so Peter says in his first epistle, conscious of all of this, to the saints under persecution, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's the appropriate response to suffering. Humble yourselves. Repent of your sins. 
Turn from your evil way. Confess to God your helplessness. Trust in him. And he will exalt you in due time. And then those altogether comforting words. Because Peter understood the difficulty of the way. Casting all your cares upon him. For he careth for you. That's our attitude then towards suffering. Or, if you want the words of the Lord Jesus himself, you want to be my disciple? These are the qualifications of discipleship than which there are none other. Don't forget, a disciple is one who follows me where I go. I mentioned that song a little while ago, The Way of the Cross Leads Home. To follow Jesus in the way he, go, he goes is to carry our cross. Like Simon, Simon who bear, bore Jesus' cross after him to Calvary. The perfect picture of discipleship. If any of you would be my disciple, and follow me in the way of suffering, because that's the way to heaven. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That must be our attitude. So important are those words that our baptism form and our form for the administration of the Lord's Supper both find it necessary in the celebration of these two sacraments God has given to the church to admonish the saints, let each one take up his cross. And even, I think it's the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper, says, let each one take up his cross cheerfully, cheerfully. As the disciples gave thanks to God that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And as we receive all suffering and all affliction at the hands of our Heavenly Father, because we know that through it we experience that too. The old man of sin in us is be put, being put to death. And we are directed to Christ don't look at the things temporal. You can't see these things if you look at what is taking place about you. You can't see the hope of the resurrection in a hole in the ground where you bury a loved one. You can't see the blessedness of suffering when your eyes are concentrated upon the agony of one who is dying of cancer. And that's why Paul says, don't look at the things which are temporal, but look at the things which are eternal. There's where you find the explanation. That's where you find the glory that awaits us. That's where you find the promises of God. That's where it is explained to you why the way of the cross leads home and no other way. And by faith, 
lay hold on that. As Paul says in the next chapter, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And so, in the midst of our sufferings, we know that when the earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved, that is, the outward man is destroyed completely, we have a building, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And for that we long, and in that, on that we set our hopes. But it takes the pain of suffering to direct our eyes to our eternal destination and tear them away from the things of this present time. The sanctifying power of suffering. That's what it is. May God give us all grace to bear our crosses cheerfully. Thank you for coming and thank you for your attention. I personally enjoyed this very much. It took me on a journey I had not traveled before trying to understand those profound passages of scripture that speak of these things. For me, it was an adventure, an exciting adventure. And I rejoice in God who gave me the opportunity to study these things more wholly. I hope you benefited somewhat by them. Let's saying a number in conclusion. I didn't ask for any questions, but you all ask your questions anyway over coffee, so you wait till then. So I won't tonight. Who has a number that, oh, I know, let's go to, uh, what is it, 426, Psalm 116? Yes, 426. I love the Lord, the fount of life and grace. He hears my voice, my cry and supplication, inclines his ear, gives strength and consolation. In life, in death, my heart will seek his face. And then five, thou, O Jehovah, in thy sovereign grace hast saved my soul from death and woe appalling dried all my tears, secured my feet from falling, lo, I shall live and walk before thy face. Let's sing one and three and five and 10. Jerusalem within thy courts I'll praise Jehovah's name. And with a spirit lowly, pay all my vows, O Zion, fair and holy. Come join with me and bless him all thy days. One, three, five, and ten. Four, twenty-six.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are very, very grateful for the scriptures which thou hast given to the church to unfold the great mysteries of thy counsel, to make known to thy people thy purposes, thy ways, which so often are mysterious and past finding out. So that we sing with the psalmist, thy way is in the sea, O God, mid mighty waters, deep and broad, None understood but God alone to man thy footsteps were unknown. But from the scriptures we learn that thou dost keep thy people safe, always protecting them, guarding them, working the salvation of Jesus Christ in them, using the sufferings of this present time for their eternal good, that, you, that thy purpose may be fulfilled in taking all thy church to glory, to bask in the glory of thee, the great living God, the glory of thy name, the glory of thy infinite perfections, the glory of thy eternal purpose, the glory revealed in Christ, the glory in which we shall share, where all things forever and ever shall be to the praise and the glory of thy name. May these classes which we have enjoyed together work sanctifying power within our hearts and create in us a more powerful inner man, that it be renewed day by day, and that as our outward man perish, and we near heaven, the inner man grows and becomes stronger and dominates in our life. Bless us, each of us, in his own individual way, a way of suffering, a way of trial, way of affliction, but a way that goes to glory and take thy church unto thyself. Forgive all the things we have done wrong. Grant us thy peace. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations. Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day Sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.